You're listening to the Formby podcast. In this podcast, Viking Village, the story of Formby, written by Edith Kelly and the Formby Society, published in 1973. The decision to make this into an audiobook is partly because the book is very difficult to get hold of these days. It's also out of print. It's also an incredibly difficult read. Joan does a magnificent job. We really enjoyed putting together this book. Viking Village, Chapter 6, Miscellany. Wrecks on the Formby Shore. There are many stories of shipwrecks in storms off the Formby Shore. High winds and lashing seas have repeatedly driven ships onto the dangerous sandbanks which lie covered at high tide. Mad Wharf Sandbank is particularly, in particular has claimed many lives. A dramatic shipwreck took place in 1833 and the hero of this occasion was Dr Richard Sumner, the surgeon of Formby. Dr Sumner was a man of outstanding physique, six feet six inches in height, with great mental ability and also a great athlete. He was the only doctor in Formby for more than 50 years. In addition, he was also surveyor of roads, rate collector, overseer and the founder of evening classes through which many of the farming population obtained their only education. In 1833, when the doctor was 35 years old, he saw the Liverpool boat The Good Intent in difficulties off the Formby shore in a northwesterly gale. The ship struck the sandbanks and was unable to refloat. The Formby fishermen thought it unwise to put out in such high seas as they considered it likely that they would not be able to reach the stranded ship and not only the sailors' lives would be lost but also the lives of all who went to the rescue. It must have been a very difficult decision. The crew of the good intent climbed into the rigging and lashed themselves to the masts and one by one they dropped off into the sea from sheer exhaustion. Dr Sumner, watching from the shore, called for help for the distressed men and said that if no boat would go out, he would go out to the ship himself. Then he sent for a bottle of rum from the lifeboat house, tied it round his neck and waded and swam through the waves till he reached the wreck. His action encouraged a few others to put out in a small boat and both the doctor and the boat reached the distressed ship. Dr Sumner climbed on board, poured rum down the throats of the exhausted men and helped them into the rescue boat. He carried those who could not walk on his shoulders, one by one, to safety. When they reached land, they were given shelter in cottages where their rescuer then gave them medical attention until they were well again. In this way, he was responsible for saving the lives of nine men. Twenty-two men had already lost their lives. For this act of heroism, Dr Sum was awarded the gold medal of the Royal Humane Society. Dr Sumner lived at one time in Browse Lane, to the west of a cottage called Scotch Cabin, occupied by Mrs Catherine Spencer. In a lease granted in 1860 by the Reverend Lonsdale Formby, he obtained the land for 29 years at a rent of 20 shillings a year for the purpose of erecting a cottage of bricks and slates. He also agreed that the cottage should not be used for the sale of beer, ale, 
porter, wine or liquors without the consent of the owner. An unnecessary precaution, I should think. Dr Sumner said that he had seen vessels sail up the Alt to discharge their cargo or to be laid up for the winter. He had also seen the Formby Trotters leaving for the fish market in Liverpool, riding on rough stout ponies with the fish in panniers at their sides. A particularly severe storm in 1839 took the roofs and chimneys off the houses and swept away the farmers' haystacks. It stripped the thatch from many thatch cottages and a windmill in Crosby was turning at such a tremendous speed that it was about to catch fire from friction when the owners were at length able to halt it. In the same storm in January, a ship called the Harvest Home left Liverpool on the 6th of the month bound for the West Indies with a general cargo, but a severe west wind blew up into a hurricane and stripped the ship of its sails, leaving it at the mercy of the wind and waves. The vessel drifted onto Mad Wharf Sands and was marooned there. Two of the crew struggled onto the shore in the ship's boat to get help. The rest of the crew climbed into the rigging and fastened themselves there. Conditions were so bad that the Forby men decided that they had no chance of reaching the ship. Two boats passed nearby and could give no help. At last, the owner of the ship, watching from the shore, obtained help from the Southport lifeboat. But by the time the rescue boat was sighted, the Formby lifeboat had also set out and reached the ship before them. The rescuers took off the mate and the cook, who were still alive, and had been lashed to the rigging for 50 hours. The rest of the crew had died. The bodies of the dead were put into the charnel house near Formby Shore to await burial, and the two men who were still alive were taken to the church inn near St Peter's Church, where they were cared for until they recovered. A wreck that many people will remember to this day was that of the Henry J. Smith, a four-masted schooner that ran aground on the sands at Freshfield in 1916. The schooner belonged to New York and was bound from Liverpool to Cardiff. It was being towed out of Liverpool by a tugboat when the tow rope parted and the schooner drifted and ran aground. Four lifeboats, including the Formby boat, put out to assist, but the tide was falling and the crew were able to wade ashore. The ship was lost, however, and broke up on the sands. Part of it was later washed ashore near Southport Pier, and part lay on the sands near Formby Point for many years, though it has now completely disappeared. In 1939, a steamer called the Pegu of the Henderson Line, Glasgow, was wrecked off the Formby shore. The passengers and crew were saved by the new Brighton lifeboat, but the cargo was from time to time washed up on Formby shore and many of Formby's men and youths enjoyed the whiskey and beer which appeared before their eyes, waiting for the taking each high tide. In fact, the situation seems very similar to the one celebrated in the book Whiskey Galore. The ship broke its back on the sandbank and part of the wreck can still be seen in the Formby channel. There must be many similar stories of wrecks in the channel of danger, disaster and heroism, and sometimes, as we have seen, of comedy. Though the lifeboat no longer operates from here, it is only fitting that Formby should remember the bravery of the lifeboatmen 
who were called so often from their fishing to risk their lives in dangerous seas. And we should pay tribute to the family of Aindo, who at, who at one time made up the entire crew of the Formby boat. A study of the cargoes of the many fishing vessels and small cargo boats that have come to their end on Formby Sands shows an interesting variety of goods. Many of them were carrying food, grain, barley, oats and wheat, oranges from Spain, salt to Sweden and St. Petersburg, rum, sugar and molasses. Tobacco and cotton from America made up many cargoes. So did wool from Scotland, linen cloth from Ireland and timber from Canada. One ship carried an, an unusual mixture flour, flint and pilchards from the south of England. Pipe clay and china clay are mentioned in the middle 19th century. One particularly romantic cargo in 1822 consisted of ivory and gold dust. A possibly unknown story is told in a few words in the shipping records of the brig William, which came ashore in 1822 when both crew and ship were saved by local fishermen. The ship had been a pirate ship and had scuttled the, big, the brig Anne at sea. She took the compasses and nailed down the hatches on the crew in the forecastle, but a cook's hatch having been left below, the crew were able to force the hatches open, repair one of the ship's boats and escape. They had their hijackers in those days too. The Great Formby Cottle Case In the 19th century, Formby Cottles were greatly prized and many fishermen made their living from cottle gathering. But it was an occupation fraught with a certain amount of danger and also of fraud, as is shown by the appointment by the court leet of lookers after the cottle beds for the manor of Ravenmills. For one season, Thomas Rimmer was appointed to this office and the Lords of the Manor agreed to pay him one pound a year for the trouble he would have. His duties were to make general regulations for the preservation of the cockle beds, and in particular to stake out the roads by which all persons going to and returning from the beds, either on foot or with horses, carts or other vehicles, shall enter thereon or return therefrom and to revoke the licences of all fishermen who are guilty of a breach of any such regulations. Also, he was to grant licences to gather cockles upon the said sands, reserving an annual rental of sixpence. The trouble expected from the cockle beds happened and was reported by the Liverpool Daily Post of August the 19th, 1867. Four men and two women parishioners of Formby were summoned for willfully damaging certain bags containing cockles and with assaulting Mary Hogan. A number of Irish people residing in Liverpool had gone down to the shore opposite Olka with boats and carts and dug up the cockle beds. The Formby people, considering this an invasion of their rights, which they enjoyed under the Lords of the Manor of Formby, to gather fish on the foreshore, rose in a body came down upon the intruders, vowing that not a sanguinary cockle should leave the shore that day, cut open the bags in which they were stored and strewed them on the beach. In the squabble, one of the Irish women 
got pushed down, hence the charge of willful damage and assault. The Coast Guards. Perhaps we in Formby might claim that the wreck lookers of the court lead were the forerunners of the Coast Guards. However, Coast Guards as they are today were appointed as part of the Customs Service after the Napoleonic Wars to help in the prevention of smuggling. They were understandably unpopular with all those sections of the population who had enjoyed the advantage of steady supplies of cheap smuggled liquor and tobacco, and some Coast Guards were even murdered for their pains. In 1856, the Admiralty took over control of these duties and the function of the Coast Guards changed. They became a coast-watching service with the duty of giving help to vessels in distress and so became linked with the lifeboat service. Since 1949, the Formby Coast Guard Station, built in 1948 in Queen's Road, has been not only the district headquarters, but also the Northwest Divisional Headquarters of the Coast Guard Service. This station is responsible for the coastline between the D estuary and the Solway Firth, about 300 miles, and it includes the stations at Fleetwood and Workington, and the lookout stations at Hoylake, Bootle, Whitehaven, Maryport, Walney Island and St Anne's, as well as nine auxiliary stations. In charge of these stations is Station Officer Richardson of Formby. The duties of the Formby Coast Guards lie in giving help and advice to all craft sailing from ports bordering the Irish Sea. They are equipped with modern means of communication. Shortwave radio puts the stations in touch with each other and also with the Royal National Lifeboat Institution, the Air Rescue Service at Valley in Anglesey, from which they can call out a helicopter to help in the search, and with the RAF station at Wharton near Preston. There is a lookout at the southern end of Formby Beach, which is manned round the clock. At the time of writing, there are six full-time Coast Guards and six auxiliary men under the supervision of the station officer a district officer and an inspector of the Northwest Division. There is also a team of 20 voluntary coast and cliff rescue men and a competition is held each year between teams around the coast for the fastest rescue work in sending out the breaches boy. Formby has held the cup awarded for this honour six consecutive times. Some of these volunteers have put in many years service and were recently awarded long service medals. Formby men to receive medals were G. Aindo, H. Eccles, E. Peel, W. Willisey, H. Bevan, E. Roberts and J. Hose. At first the lookout was situated north of the old lifeboat house on a high sand dune which has now been completely washed away by the ever encroaching sea. Auxiliary Coast Guard Harry Bevan recollects many severe hours of duty when men had to crawl up the sand dunes on their hands and knees to reach the lookout post in the teeth of a howling westerly gale. He also recollects struggling along the shore towards Birkdale to find out where a schooner had been blown inshore at the height of a tremendous gale. The schooner was eventually blown ashore towards Southport Pier, its name ironically being the Happy Harry. 
The Formby Coast Guards have been involved in many sea dramas during the past 23 years. One was the tragic loss of the car ferry Princess Victoria when she sank in Belfast Lock off Copeland Island on January the 31st, 1953, after her stern doors were broken in by heavy seas. Another was the collision between the coast of Freshfield and the Lady Gwendolyn in the Crosby Channel on November the 10th, 1961. Both amateur yachtsmen and the wildfowlers of the Southport Marshes are frequently indebted to the Coast Guards for their safety when a sudden squall arises or the swift flowing tide cuts off some unsuspecting wildfowler on his dawn or evening shoot. Two of the original Coast Guards to Formby, to come to Formby lie buried in St Luke's churchyard Inspector Arthur Shaw, MBE, who died tragically as the result of an accident while test-firing two-pound line-throwing rockets at Brixham in August 1968, and Station Officer Ernest Pye, who died in May 1960. The coming of the railway. In the 1851 census, there was a combined total population of 1,594 for Formby and Ainsdale. By this time, the Liverpool, Crosby and Southport Railway had come and a process of development had been set in motion, the end of which we have not yet seen. Towards the end of the 18th century, an ever-increasing number of our ancestors discovered the delights and benefits of immersing the whole of their bodies in seawater and the medical profession gave its blessing. This fashion gave rise to modern Southport. At first, visitors from a distance had to travel as best they could. It took two days to come from Liverpool by packet boat on the Liverpool and Leeds Canal. A boat sailed from Liverpool to Manchester on the first day and on the second day, one left Manchester at 8am, arriving at 7pm at Scaresbrick Bridge. From there, passengers travelled by cart or coach to Southport. It should be remembered that the first passenger railway was opened in 1830. The mounting dissatisfaction with slow and cumbrous transport inevitably drew Southport into the vortex of the railway mania of the 1840s. In June 1847, a petition was addressed to the House of Lords on behalf of a bill under consideration for a Liverpool, Crosby and Southport railway. Royal assent was granted a month later. On New Year's Day the following year, a meeting of shareholders under the chairmanship of Mr William Blundell of Crosby Hall resolved that the portion of the line between Waterloo and Southport should immediately be constructed. The first sod was cut, cut on March the 24th and this portion of the line was completed in three months, although the formal opening did not take place until July the 21st. At the outset, the line consisted of a single pair of rails. The subsequent extension southwards was not so expeditious. It was not until September the 28th, 1850, that a service of trains into the Tyde Barn Street station came into operation. The original stations between Waterloo and Southport were Crosby, Hightown, Formby, Ainsdale and Birkdale. 
1854, it was decided that a second station was needed at the northern end of Formby. This was constructed on a field belonging to a farmer named Fresh. The original intention of naming it Freshton was abandoned and Fresh Field was chosen. It was for this reason that the thoroughfare, which until then had been known as Four Acre Lane, became Freshfield Road. The original Southport terminus was at East Bank Street. By August 1851, an extension was made to Chapel Street, as had always been intended, and the line, as we now know it, was completed, all in a space of rather more than three years. There have been two reconstructions of Formby Station. The original station, a very modest affair with a level crossing, was replaced about 1880, and this in turn gave way in 1912 to the bridge and the present group of buildings. Electrification of the entire length of the railway was effected in 1904. The Liverpool, Crosby and Southport Railway Company had a brief and troubled existence. In 1855, it was taken over by the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company. In that year, an account was published of a journey in a first-class coach on a new railway from Liverpool to Southport, the only desirable route, the writer declared. He described Formby as a calm retreat which lies extremely low. Indeed, the hamlet might altogether escape observation, but for a brobdingnag bolt bolster reared on end, the lighthouse, which acts as a beacon by day and a friendly star by night. The country beyond Formby was remarkable as being the model of what the Sahara, the great desert of Africa, was formed. Rabbits and windmills being the only animals which exist in this inhospitable region. The advent of the railway, it may be said, marked the end of an era. Now the Liverpool merchants and businessmen, who up to this time had necessarily been compelled to live within reasonable distance from their offices, found it pleasant, convenient and practicable to live in the country. And so a new Formby began to take shape. The question is frequently asked, what would it be like in Formby in those bygone days? There is a memorial brass in the Formby Chapel at St Peter's Church, which helps towards an understanding. It is in memory of Anne Lonsdale Formby, Mary Formby and Elizabeth Formby. These honoured and deeply loved daughters of the Reverend Richard Formby, LLB, of Formby Hall, and Anne, his wife, who during the, the earlier and middle part of the 19th century, with their whole hearts ministered by precept, example and, benefic and beneficence to the comfort and welfare, temporal and spiritual, to the peaceful farmers and labourers, who at that period formed the sole population of the district of Formby which devotion was returned by feelings of the warmest affection and honour, an epitome of old times. Formby by the Sea Within a few years after the completion of the Liverpool to Southport Railway, another ambitious project was launched, which would have radically changed the face of Formby had it succeeded. A company was incorporated in 1875 under the title of the Formby Land and Building Company, with a capital of £50,000. 
The original subscribing members were Richard Bentinch, Edward Idden, John Barnes, Abram Lord, Azabel Pilkington Bell, James Parker, Joseph Whitton. With the exception of Mr Bell, a Manchester man, they were all from Southport. The first directors were Thomas Walkden, Edward Idden, John Barnes, James Parker, Abram Lord, Joseph Whitton, Thomas Chapman, John Carr, John Burnett, Isabel P. Bell. The last named three were from Manchester. Mr Chapman was a Liverpool man. The others were from Southport. The Memorandum of Association of the Company gave as its first object the purchasing of a freehold estate at Raven Mills Formby. The sum of 12,100 was expended on the four several plots of freehold land situated at Raven Mills in the township of Formby, containing 105 acres. The accompanying map showed an oblong area bounded on three sides by Andrews Lane, Barton Hayes Road and Miles Lane, which obviously refers to Raven Mills Lane. At one time, the latter name is understood to have applied to the entire length leading to the coast. In between these roads, they acquired a field of 11 acres and two narrow fields connecting them to the shore. The company raised a mortgage on at least a portion of their property at an early stage. This was discharged in 1878 and as a result, several new names came into the picture, James Carr, John Elson and Samuel Foster, subsequently to be perpetuated by street names in this part of Formby. The remainder of the company's objects were set out as follows. The purchase of any other lands and hereditaments, the erection, construction or alteration of buildings, the laying out, forming and sewering of streets, roads, parks, gardens, squares, crescents, terraces, boulevards, promenades and other open spaces. The making of piers, jetties and landing places in, upon and connected with lands purchased. The laying of tramways, railways and running carriages thereon by steam or other motive power for hire or profit. The forming of waterworks and reservoirs for supplying water for rent or for sale. The erection of gasworks and the manufacture of gas and the selling of the same. The erection of markets, docks, hotels, laundries, baths, water gardens, aquariums. The manufacture of bricks and tiles and selling the same. Truly an ambitious programme. The first preparatory step was to run a narrow gauge track from the siding at Formby Station for the conveyance of building materials etc. This ran along Andrews Lane to a point which is now Crescent Avenue. Then it turned westwards into a new road, Cambridge Road, which the company laid out. They hoped to continue in a direct line through Furwood, but this was denied them and they had to swing round this estate before continuing with Alexandra Road and Albert Road. This brought them to the coast and here they constructed the first item on their programme, a double-tiered promenade of brick and cement, 
joining up the westerly ends of the two roads. The first sod was cut in 1876. Behind the promenade and parallel with it, two other roads were partly made. One was named Lord Street. Houses of the seaside boarding house type were erected on the promenade and in Alexandra Road, and some of the older houses in the area owned by the company may also have been built by them. This practically represents the sum total of the company's actual achievements. In July 1902, it was wound up. When one considers this quite modest record in the light of the glittering possibilities set out in the Articles of Association, a number of questions spring to mind. What made these men launch out as they did? What grounds had they for thinking they were onto a good thing? Why did they fail? One explanation could be that it was nothing more than another business proposition on the part of men with a hunch that Formby could be developed much in the same way and with as much success as Southport. Most of them belonged to Southport and had seen how the newly founded popularity of sea bathing and the coming of the railway had brought about an almost meteoric development there. It is more than likely they had played a part in this and shared in the resultant prosperity. Certainly the notion of development was in the air. It penetrated even into the baronial halls of Formby. In Mrs Catherine Jackson's book, Formby Reminiscences, she makes this reference to her three aunts, daughters of the Reverend Richard Formby. My aunts had a firm foundation footing in the practical. They had a shrewd prevision of the course of progress. They saw the possible probabilities of the requirements of a large increase in the industrial town. And in idea, they pictured the villas and parades of a bathing place, or what is now called the health resort at Formby Point or Raven Mills. They looked forward. I must confess they had an eye to profit. This judgment is borne out by a document preserved in the Lancashire County Record Office, in which, in consideration of the fact that Mary Formby of Formby Hall, Spinster, has built a house called the Hay of the annual value of £40 near Freshfield Station, the railway company agrees to provide her with a first-class pass between Freshfield and Liverpool for 10 years. Further evidence that such possibilities were in mind came from the sentence of consecration of St Luke's Church Formby on December the 14th, 1855. And whereas a part of the township of Formby is situated on the seashore and at a considerable distance from the village of Formby and from the vicinity of the railroad and because of the excellent seashore for bathing, a great increase of population is expected to take place, especially if proper church accommodation be afforded. When in 1878 a bill promoted by the Southport Water Company was examined by a parliamentary committee, Mr Thomas Hawksley, an eminent engineer who was advising the company, referred to the construction of a promenade at Formby and hazarded a prophecy that Formby was a potential rival to Southport. As the real facts of the land and building company's formation and somewhat ignominious failure are not known, it may be that their venture was simply an unfortunate speculation. 
but when one contrasts the declared aim and actual performance, the conviction grows that something more is needed. Why should they deliberately select as the scene of their operations that point along the coastline most remote from the railway? Would not Ainsdale, for example, have been a much more convenient and less, less expensive proposition? At Formby Point, they had the longest haul for their building materials. The site was virtually unapproachable until new roads were made. The visitors for whom they looked would have to footslog a mile and a half to get there until the spot developed further. Boarding house housekeepers would be miles from shops and other amenities. The most plausible explanation is that, that, that the directors had grounds for anticipating the construction of, an, of a new railway line branching off the Liverpool to Southport line at Hightown to reach the coast of Formby. The old Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company is known to have had something of this nature under contemplation, but it was only when the Land and Building Company was fizzling out that the coastal railway began to emerge as a live proposition. Mr Weatherall, who came to Freshfield as station master in 1901, soon heard of it and recalled frequent visits by the general manager of the railway company as the route was prospected. Shortly before the First World War, the line was pegged out for at least a portion of its length in fields belonging to Marsh Farm and Cabin Hill Farm. Application for the necessary authority was made in May 1915, but not until 1918 was this forthcoming. The Board of Trade then made an order authorising the Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway Company to construct light railways at and near Formby. The line was to begin at Hightown Station, running westwards of the existing line, swinging gradually away to pass on the west side of the lighthouse, thence to the coast at Formby Point. From there, it ran in a wide arc to rejoin the main line just south of Ainsdale. It was to cross the Alt by a girder bridge, similar to that crossing the main line. There was to be one station at or near Alexandra Road and a bridge over Lifeboat Road, 36 feet wide and of a gradient no steeper than one in 30. The railway company was to make and maintain six level crossings for all purposes at Cabin Hill. Cocklepath Road, i.e. an extension of Range Lane, between Cocklepath Road and Albert Road, behind Asparagus Cottage, Albert Road, Alexandra Road, and at a westward extension of Kirklake Road. The entire cost was estimated at £77,000. In 1924, the London, Midland and Scottish Railway Company applied for a revival of the 1918 authority, but no further action transpired the rapid development of road transport presumably being the decisive factor. In view of the recent westward trend of Formby's population, one can imagine the chairman of the Land and Building Company addressing his now shadow board. Gentlemen, it would appear we were a little ahead of our time. Flying at Freshfield. Formby played its part in the early development of aviation. In June 1910, flying experiments were made on the shore at Freshfield and an aviation club was started there. 
Five hangars were set up on the level sands near the end of Victoria Road. Among these early, among these early flyers were Mr C.C. Patterson of the Liverpool Motor House Company, Mr Henry G. Melly and Mr Higginbottom. Mr Patterson flew a Curtis machine. Mr Melly and Mr Higginbottom flew Blériome planes. Another pilot, Mr King, used a biplane, while a fifth, Mr Fenwick, was experimenting with a Handley Page aircraft. Mr Melly, in a letter written in 1953, says, I myself came to Freshfield in August 1910 from France, where I had just completed nine weeks training as an aviator. My licence number was 212. In England that year, there were about 15 registered flyers. I was flying a Blerio single-seater, a copy of the plane in which the famous captain first crossed the channel. It was powered by a 25-horsepower engine. In this, I flew on occasions to Southport for breakfast. I used to park the plane under the pier. At Freshfield, the hangars faced inland, and often we had to clear away the sand which piled in front of them in order to wheel out our planes. We were frequently helped in this task by enthusiastic schoolboys from Formby. Mr Melly had just celebrated his 85th birthday when he wrote this letter. The flying from the shore was a great attraction and crowds visited the beach on the lookout for planes. Mr Graham White used to fly from Blackpool to New Brighton and back again via Southport, Formby and Waterloo in 1920. And his frequent visits were very popular, especially as he used to chat with the onlookers while preparing his machine for flight. And that is the end of that chapter. Thanks to the Formby Society of 2021 for giving us permission to read this book and share it with you. Well, we're fully up to date now. Thanks to Edith Kelly and the Formby Society for Formby Viking Village, read by Joan Rimmer. A hard read for Joan, very enjoyable and incredibly up to date. Formby Podcast is an independent production. If you'd like us to share your story or you have a story or music, poems that you'd like to share with Formby Podcast, email us at formbypodcast at gmail.com. Formby Podcast is an independent production. See you next time.